This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Like a warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Good morning, good morning. Thank goodness and Greyhound. It's Friday here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave inside our Melon Law studio in God's country in the piney woods of north central Florida. And we've got a great guest today. We're going to get into a pretty intellectual conversation, I hope. Very few people can keep up with me intellectually. I think our guest today can. <laughs> Little joke there, real private joke with my fans here, Mary. But uh, we're in the Melon Law Studios, you know. They're a big fan, supporter of ours. 50 years of uh, legal experience, full legal experience, and the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida, Gators, that won't back down. And we're protected 24-7, 365 by our good friends at Crime Prevention cpss.net. We'll have the weather for you at halftime uh, at the bottom of the show. And uh, we got the phone line open, but we're not going to take any questions or any callers until after the bottom of the break. I'm assuming our guests will be with us after the break and uh, we'll open it up and let you ask some questions. So uh, today we're really having a discussion that is, um, well, it goes back to my early college days. And I'm going to spring this on Marion Tupe, who is our guest. Uh, today, who is from the Cato Institute, uh, and that's a pretty heady outfit, do a lot of good research and study a lot of things that are hopefully done without any political interference, as so much study can be corrupted nowadays by some ideology that creeps into the laboratory. But, um, uh, you know, I'm a former research professor, so I look for syllogisms and logical fallacies and all those things that I uh, have been trained to look at. And one of the things I want to talk a little bit about here is uh, the work that Marion has been doing at the Cato Institute and studying the relationship of population and food and geography and all those things that intertwine to create a standard of living that is bearable on this earth. Um, Marion, when I was a college student very early in 1961, uh, that might be before you were born. I don't know, sir. <laughs> yes, I was born in 1976. You were born, born when? 76. Oh, my golly, man. Well, I was a college student in 1961, and I took a course from a, a fellow that I thought was pretty interesting, and he introduced us to a book called The Challenge of Man's Future by Harrison Brown. Uh, I don't know if you know that work, but um, it was one of the first one which uh, piqued uh, our interest as students uh, in the relationship of population and standard of living and growth and all that sort of business. It's been well, I think it was written in 1954, published here in the United States. And now come along your work. And uh, it's almost um, counterintuitive to what Harrison Brown suggested. If I have Harrison Brown treated properly and my professor's long since gone, it would grade me in what I'm about to say. But the overpopulation of the earth would lead to plague and uh, things that would uh, create a kind of a, purging, if you will, of the relationship of the numbers of people to the habitat. That stuck with me all these years. And so now I'm taking a look at your work, and uh, it's uh, kind of a little different. It suggests that 
possibly, if I got it right, correct me if I got it wrong, that um, the more people we get, the more productivity we should get. And that productivity should make being here with greater numbers more bearable and possibly, therefore, sustainable. Am I close? Yes. And just a basic, uh, basic example can show that that is indeed correct. In 1800, the time of the Thomas Jefferson presidency, there was one billion people in the world. Uh, today, uh, on 15th of November, there will be eight billion of us. Global standards of living over those 200 years have risen by 12-fold in the United States by 24-fold adjusted for inflation. So clearly, increased humanity has not resulted in greater poverty. Quite the contrary, it resulted in America becoming a much wealthier place than it was uh, right after the American Revolution when the population was much smaller. How do you define wealth? Well, in the book, uh, we, we talk about abundance, really, abundance of resources. We look at the prices of metals, minerals, food, and fuel. And what we find is that in, in uh, hundreds of commodities going back all the way to 1850, all of them have fallen in price relative to income. So they become cheaper. So we measure abundance in terms of the basic commodities that you can get in your life. We are not looking at Lamborghinis or yachts. We are looking at things which ordinary people, people at the very bottom of the income ladder, need in order to live. Bread, uh, beef, uh, pork, uh, oranges, um, anything like that. Well, you know, my mother lived to be 107 and a half, my man, and she was born in 1912, three months after the Titanic sank. Uh, she died in February of 2019 at 107 and a half. That's beautiful. And unbelievable, wasn't it? And she went through the Depression here in the United States, which never left that generation of people. Yes. And I asked her how they got by because they had no money. But they had food. And what they did in the cities, even in her time, they started growing gardens in the backyard. And that became their definition of wealth. And I asked some other guys who were up around 90, 100 at the time, what was the thing that got you through it? He said, well, we didn't have money, but we had food. So the point is they didn't have to buy the food. And what bothers me now is that people don't produce their own food. And they live in more intensified relationships with the buildings and skyscrapers and uh, things like that. At best, maybe they got a window box with tomatoes in there. Um, how do you factor that in? I'm, I'm very curious. Well, look, um, look, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from your, your mother and also from that generation. Uh, mind you, my granny grew up during the Second World War under the Nazi and later under the communist occupation. They had to eat cats uh, and dogs in order to survive. So, you know, when you do have political mismanagement or war, uh, you can get uh, into situations where people really have to rely on their own wits to survive by killing whatever surrounds them or growing their own food. However, if all of us were spending our time growing our own food, America would be a much less prosperous place. The reason why we are rich is because 98% of Americans who are working 
are working in things other than agriculture. They are producing Zoom software, the shirt that you are wearing, the glasses on your face, things like that. If, if we all had to work in agriculture, then there simply wouldn't be people to produce everything else we have, books, cars, airplanes, roads, etc., etc. The reason why agricultural societies are poor is because everybody is growing their own food, but nobody's doing anything else which is necessary in order to create the kind of prosperous society which we are today. You know, this jives completely with uh, some of the other things that I've studied, of course, along the way, Marion. Um, the intensification of productivity by fewer and fewer percentage of our population indeed allows us to enjoy a lot more material wealth and produce more products. Um, one of the other fascinating courses I took and with whom I taught, team taught quite a bit at the college, were uh, the physical and cultural anthropologists. I found they could really take a long view back in an objective kind of way. And we traced up, I remember we team taught going from hunters and gatherers, which supported a very small group of people, of course, and uh, had no written documents to support their identity and therefore could be easily be dominated by one uh, group that did because a written down group will always dominate an oral society because they have the rules there they can go codify and point to as justification for the behavior. And we work our way up through agriculture, which I think occurs, first of all, in the Middle East, I think, if I recall. My, am I right on that, Mary? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Mesopotamia, about 12,000 years ago. Yeah, and that's where we first get a little bit of surplus of wealth. We do get uh, sort of an abundance there. And I'm calling, going back to my anthropology team teaching deals with my good friend who's since passed. Um, but that wasn't the one that could support the greatest number of people. So the more you reduce the reliance of people producing the food, you could therefore create a greater population. And that greater population become pretty powerful and pretty influential. And that's kind of where we are in the United States. And one of my defenses of the United States, people keep saying, oh, the United States needs to be reset or redone or relooked at. Well, buddy, if you want to do that, you're going to have to go back to a society that, you know, won't support your population. Come on. We, we are the ones who led the pioneering. I'm not besmirching Europe, of course, but, you know, Europe was torn apart by so many fragmented, you know, boundary lines, as you know. You're, you live that. And it's a sad commentary because paradoxically, Europe was so civilized. I mean, the great ballet out of Moscow and the great music, you know what I'm saying? At, at the same time, we have all these battles, which never made any sense to me. But um, well, a couple, think... of issues, a couple of couple of things on this. Um, one reason why the agricultural revolution was so important is because it allowed for the birth of cities, and cities are the birthplace of new ideas and new technological progress. Technology uh, is rarely improved in rural areas. It's really the cities, from ancient cities all the way to New York City today or uh, LA or San Francisco, which provide for the greatest number of technological innovations. So it was precisely because 
um, uh, agriculture, intensive agriculture, or rather extensive agriculture back then, allowed for the birth of cities that people could live together and start communicating and exchanging ideas about how to make the world a better place. Um, and when it comes to Europe, um, the reason why uh, industrial revolution starts in Europe and the reason why uh, prosperity really begins in Europe in 1750s is precisely because Europe was dismembered. They were constantly competing with one another, uh, very much like the American states. They were, they are competing against one another and trying to attract the best brains to come to their country. So Holland would be poaching talent from France. Uh, Britain would be poaching talent from uh, Holland and so on and so forth. And so it was this competition between warring states, which really allows for the birth of modernity in Europe, which then spreads, of course, to uh, the colonies, including the United States. And I think that we are seeing something very similar in the U.S., where by providing a better business environment um, and a better government in Florida, for example, you are now able to attract a lot of smart people and rich people from New York and other areas which are misgoverned. You know, it's uh, so coincidental that you mentioned that, Marion, because last night we went to a huge rally here for our governor, DeSantis. And one of the most dynamic public speakers, and I've heard a lot of them in my lifetime, um, I've ever heard uh, really talk about exactly what you're talking about. What this governor has done here is maintain free enterprise, um, de-emphasize government intrusion and in manipulating the marketplace for ideological reasons, uh, letting the competition be governed by the smart people who are naturally competitive and going to try to produce the best product. Um, that's the atmosphere we've got right now. And the question has become, Marion, what kind of population can we support? I, I, I tell you, my brother, it, it, there is no, nothing is at rest here. <laughs> Everywhere you go, you see a, a crane or a bulldozer or, you know, it doesn't stop. And we look to California as a bad example because California must have peaked in its quality of life in the 50s. Uh, you know, I can't imagine it having gotten better than it was then. It had to do with the relationship, did it not, correct me if I'm wrong, of people and productivity to the land. Because I'm, am I right? I mean, I was a big geography fan too in high school. I got all A's in geography. For some reason, geography fascinated me. So. Well, not necessarily, not necessarily land. I mean, you can get productivity growth from all sorts of things, like, for example, establishing a, uh, a store online that would sell books and later on everything, which is Amazon. Um, so that, that's, that's actually a released land. Because, of course, since you can find everything on Amazon, you don't need all the malls around America, uh, which then can be converted into housing units or anything else, sports stadiums. And consequently, you're actually releasing land by providing all the shopping that you need online. So I don't think that wealth necessarily comes from land. It can, but not necessarily. Wealth comes from human brain. Human brain is where new ideas originate. And, um, uh, you know, it is ideas, not atoms, which create wealth. We have exactly the same resources as cavemen had two million years ago. Exactly the same number of atoms in the world, of copper, of iron, of whatever. And yet our standards of living are much, much higher 
than the caveman. And the difference between our standards of living and his standards of living is not the amount of atoms, but new knowledge which people in the world have today. You know, and one of the things I was happy to see you concluded in your findings, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you had many surprises that you discovered along your way. 